Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker, your host for this tour through the sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the eminent Victorian pastor and preacher. Each week, we work our way through a series of those sermons, this week, 913 to 919, and each week we try to select a featured sermon. This one is 914, a sermon entitled Work in Us and Work by Us. I want to begin at the end of the sermon. This is the final paragraph and the conclusion. I charge you, my brethren, by the living God, unless your religion be hypocrisy, help me this month. Help my brethren, the elders and deacons. Help us, every one of you. By the blood that bought you, if ye be indeed redeemed. By the Holy Ghost that is in you, except ye be reprobates. By everything that God in loving kindness has done for you, I charge you, come to the help of the Master in this, the hopeful hour. So may the Lord do unto you as you shall deal with us this day. If you shall indeed consecrate yourselves to him and serve him, may he enrich you with the increase of God, and may the peace of God that passeth all understanding keep your hearts and minds. But if ye refuse your service, the Lord shall judge you. He that knoweth his master's will and doeth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. The sermon is entitled Work in Us and Work by Us, and it was delivered on the 6th of February, 1870. And that conclusion suggests, although I could find no immediate evidence for this in, for example, the Sword and Trowel Spurgeon's magazine for February and March of 1870, but that conclusion suggests that this, as so often, was a season of particular effort or endeavour in the congregation, perhaps some great gospel campaign that they were endeavouring to pursue at that time. The text is Colossians 1, 29. Whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, Spurgeon is very balanced in this sermon, not balanced in the sense that he doesn't manage to say anything worth saying, but he's very careful to hold together our determination to serve God and our dependence on God in serving him. He begins by reminding us that you see in the career of the Apostle Paul something more than that of an ordinary Christian life. He was so indefatigable in service that surely nothing beyond could have been possible to humanity even under the help of God. And Spurgeon says it's it's as a man who knows the inward influence of the Holy Spirit that he is so wholehearted and intense in all that he did. We ought to remember not merely the amount of his labours, but the way in which he wore himself out by the intensity of his zeal in those labours. And yet, despite the effort that he makes and the attainments which he uh, achieves, Note it well, says Spurgeon, the apostle takes no honour to himself, but humbly ascribes whatever he had done or suffered entirely to his Lord. And Spurgeon says, that's what we ought to be doing. Whenever you mention your abundant labours, like Paul, you say, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul remembered where to put the crown, and so should we. So we imitate the apostle in these two things, both the life that we lead and the glory that we give. My brothers, says Spurgeon, let us live while we live a life of energy, but let us at the same time confess when we've done all that we are unprofitable servants. 
And if there be any glory and any praise resulting from the work which we achieve, let us be careful to lay it all at the Redeemer's feet. And that's how he wants to handle this text. It's clear from what Paul has here said in Colossians 1.29 that the work of Christ in us and for us does not exempt us from work and service, nor does the Holy Spirit's work supersede human effort, but rather excites it. And so we need to uh, pursue what Spurgeon says as he illustrates this truth in its two respects. First, in reference to man's own salvation and secondly, in the matter of the Christian man's ministry for the salvation of others. In both of those instances, our own salvation and then our ministry pursuing the salvation of others, the work of the Holy Spirit does not supersede Christian effort. That is, it doesn't push it out of its proper place. We have to hold both of these things together, and Spurgeon is going to do that, I believe, in the course of this sermon. And it, it's, remember, it's pressing toward that very potent, very blunt conclusion. First, then, he says, in the believer's salvation, we believe that each one of us, and we have scriptural warrant for it, if any man be saved, the work within his soul is entirely wrought by the Holy Ghost. He says, this is, this is where we're beginning. We shall never begin Neither shall we ever persevere except as grace is at work in us, both to bring us into the kingdom and then to keep us from falling. Nor, he says, may we hope to be presented faultless before the august presence, except as the Holy Spirit shall sanctify us from day to day and make us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we don't put for a a moment that truth aside, but Spurgeon wants to insist upon this further truth that that working of the Holy Spirit in us does not in any way exempt the believer from the most energetic labor, but rather necessitates his doing all that lies in him. How is he going to enforce this remark? First of all, by telling us that the Christian life is always described as a thing of energy. Effort is used all the way through, and you that are pilgrims to the skies will find it to be no allegory, but a real matter of fact. Your soul must gird up her loins. You need your pilgrim's staff and armour, and you must foot it all the way to heaven, contending with giants, fighting with lions, and combating Apollyon himself. It's a, a race an even sterner work than pilgrimage represented in the scriptures. Running to heaven is this flat-out running, straining every nerve. We shall require all the power we have and more in order to win that incorruptible crown which now glitters before the eye of our faith. If we are so to run that we may obtain, we shall have no energy to spare, but shall spend it all in our heavenly course. And then there's another illustration. He, he's building up these uh, biblical images to emphasize that the Christian life is always described as a thing of energy. It's a boxing match or a wrestling match. No child's play then to win heaven. Saved, as I repeat it, through the power of Christ's blood and with the energy of his Holy Spirit within us, yet we have no time to loiter, no space in which to trifle. We must labor, striving according to his working who works in us mightily. So all these figures and He's just selected these few. They represent the Christian life as requiring the most energetic exertion. Then 
He remarks that there's no illustration used in Scripture to set forth this heavenly life, which allows the supposition that in any case heaven is won by sloth. There may be occasional opportunities by which even idle men may become wealthy, he says, but such spiritual wealth I have never heard of. I find that wherever the Spirit of God comes upon men, it never leaves a saved man effortless or fruitless, but as soon as it descends upon him, according to his capacity, he begins to work out his own salvation. And then he says, I want you to understand that it's natural that things should be this way, natural that the work of the Holy Spirit in us should engender or or draw up and out work by us unavoidable in the very nature of things, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he should not beget a spirit of slumber, but awaken us to diligent action. After a man has found Christ to the pardon of his sin, says our preacher, the Holy Spirit is pleased to endear Christ more and more to him, and that then calls us to Christian service. So he says, brothers, the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in a man never can be a reason for his not working. On the contrary, the moment a man perceives that the Spirit is helping him, he is encouraged diligently to labour. The work of the Spirit in us stirs up our own working. And so to conclude this point, still emphasising the experience of our being saved, it is most certain that all saving acts must be performed by the man himself. In other words, though they are not performed without the inward working of the Holy Spirit, nevertheless they are the acts of the man. Faith is the gift of God, but the Holy Ghost never believed for anybody. It's not his office to believe. The sinner must believe. Repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Ghost never repented. What had he to repent of? He's done nothing wrong. It cannot be possible for him to repent for us. No, we ourselves must repent. He's emphasizing that there must be in every man a personal faith and a personal repentance. And, though these are wrought or worked in him by the Holy Spirit, yet they are his own acts. They cannot be the acts of anybody else, or else the man himself has not believed, has not repented. There's no life in him. So he's saying, this this is human responsibility. It is not a part from divine sovereignty, but it is responsive to it and properly the very act of the man himself. Note again, he says, if we were not made active but are simply acted on by the Holy Ghost, there's a reduction of manhood to materialism. It makes us a mere robot or an automaton. To carve blocks, he says, and move logs is a small glory. But this that we're talking about, this is the glory of God's grace, that without violating the human will, he yet achieves his own purpose, and treating men as men, he conquers their hearts with love and wins their affections by his grace. So the work of the Holy Spirit then, in this matter of our salvation, engages all the the powers of our redeemed humanity. I warn any here present, he says, who imagine that man is a merely passive being in salvation against putting that theory of theirs into practice. I am alarmed for you if you say, well, God will save me if he so decrees, and therefore I will sit still and wait, which would have been a a reflection upon the classic hyper-Calvinism of Spurgeon's day. My hearer, I'm afraid for you, he says, if you think like that. 
you're neglecting the great salvation, and I again remind you of that warning, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So respond to the Holy Spirit, led and guided by his mighty working. Come to the foot of Christ's cross, trust alone to him, and a voice shall sound in your heart, thy sins which are many are all forgiven thee. But now there's something else that follows on from that. In the matter of our salvation, the Holy Spirit works in us, and so then there is work by us. But in the second part of the subject, again, remember the conclusion to which he's driving, that there's this great gospel push about to take place, as far as we can tell, and he wants the whole congregation fully engaged In reference to the ministry of the saints for the conversion of others, there is a work in us and there is a work by us. And he again begins with insisting on the primacy and preeminence of the Holy Spirit's operations. The Holy Ghost alone can convert a soul. All the ministries in the world put together, he reminds us, be they what they may, are utterly powerless for the salvation of a single soul apart from the Holy Ghost. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But, and here's the other part of the equation, and remember it's not opposition, it's alongside. Wherever the Holy Spirit works as a general rule, so general that I scarcely know an exception, it is in connection with the earnest efforts of Christian men. Where do we derive that teaching? Well, it's clear, he says, first of all, from the example of the text. The Apostle Paul certifies certifies that the salvation of souls is the sole work of Christ, but he declares also that he laboured, and he adds striving or agonising. The Spirit works, but it's in connection with the Apostle's labour and agony for souls. And so he says, labouring implies abundant work. You haven't worked hard, you haven't laboured, you haven't agonised if you've, you've only worked for a half an hour in a whole day. No, a man who's a thorough labourer makes long hours and is always at it. The Apostle Paul was such a man. The winning of souls was not a piece of by-play with him. It was his one object to which he consecrated everything. No tradesman, and he does this a lot, doesn't he? He he, he, he compares the, the work that we do or the attitude that we have in the things of the world, the passing world, to the way that we engage with the eternal kingdom. No tradesman expects his shop to prosper who has it open only one hour a day. And you must not expect to be soul winners if you only now and then seek to be such. There must be, as far as time and capacity allow, the consecration of yourselves to this work, even to an abundance of effort. Then again, labour means hard work. It's not trifling. Uh, You're not a labourer if you take your spade and play with it like a little kid down at the seaside building a sandcastle. You labour, working till the sweat streams from your face, and that's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is engaged with. Baxter used to say, tell Spurgeon, that if any minister found his ministry easy, he'd find it hard to answer for it at the day of judgment. Then there's personal labour, for no man is a labourer who does it through his servants. He may be an employer, but he can't say, I labour, in the same way. So we're not mid-delegators, we're not man-managers. Others aren't the agents of our work. No, we ourselves need to get our hands dirty. We ourselves need to engage closely. 
Spurgeon says, uh, it's, it's this intensity with which he preaches. I wish I could devise some mode of speech by which I could thrust my hand into your hearts and get my soul to pulsate close by yours to make you feel what I feel. Between the pulpit and the pew, there's too often a great gulf fixed. Uh, he says, you want to get into your parlour, into your living room, into your kitchen, and then you can press home eternal things. You've got a personal influence. Learn from your adversaries, he says. Look at the way that the the the, the priest is close to men and women in the confessional, in the Roman Catholic communion. He says that's, that, that gives you a sort of a power when you're close up to people. And, and you get a sense then, if you're a preacher, that we're too often easy being too far distant, not just physically, but affectionately from the saints. So he says, not even this will suffice. Abundant Christian work, hard Christian work, personal Christian work. You hear that the structure here within the structure. Remember, you've got the first main heading, the second main heading. Then under the second heading, you've got this example of the text. And now you've got the abundant work. You've got the hard work. You've got the personal work. And you've got the conflict of the work, this inward soul conflict. And you've got the, the logic then of his arrangement. It's, it's not just a, a flow out of his soul that, that's, that's thoughtless and careless. There's development. There's division of the material. If your soul never breaks for another, he says, you will not be the means of breaking that other's heart. But when it comes to this, I must have that soul saved. I cannot bear the thought that it should be cast away. That's when you are near winning that soul. What if it were your child or your husband or your brother? Are you ready almost to sacrifice your own soul like Paul if they might just be saved? My brother, when your heart breaks with love to souls, they shall be yours. Is that true of any of us today? Do our hearts break over our family members and our friends and our neighbours? There must be conflicts, says Spurgeon. I pity that minister whose life is of one of uninterrupted spiritual ease. Can I know, he asks, that among these thousands who are listening to my voice, he's right in the moment, isn't he? Among these thousands who are now listening to my voice, perhaps half are dead in trespasses and sins, can I then be insensible as a marble statue? Can, can I feel no more than a piece of rock? Then God have mercy upon me as well as upon you. Unhappy souls to be entrusted to the care of one so utterly unfit for such a service. Now, we might not speak that way in the pulpit, but do we ever feel that way in or out of the pulpit? So you've got the, the example of the text that there's going to have to be this working by us, uh, following on from the work in us in, the, uh, in the, the salvation of sinners. And then he says that's plain from the work itself. Brothers, souls are not converted as a rule without previous prayer for them on the part of someone or other. And if that's the case, well, then we must be stirred up to prayer. Souls are saved instrumentally through teaching, but the teaching which saves souls is never cold, dead preaching. God may occasionally bless such word, words because he does great wonders. But as a rule, the, the teaching that convinces and enlightens is earnest and enthusiastic. There's a, a correspondence between the pleading in prayer and the pleading in preaching. So he says, there are some who warn souls of their danger in such a careless tone that they create an unbelief which many an earnest tongue will not be able to dispel. 
I mean, can you can you imagine Spurgeon preaching this sermon and saying something like, "Well, I'm I'm deeply concerned for you. I want you to be saved. After all, there's a there's a fearful hell. There's a dreadful fire to come." There's an awful judgment that looms over you. And by all means, I wish you were fleeing from it. I wish you were running to Jesus Christ. That would be the best thing, I suppose. Is that, is that how anyone would preach those words? I mean, that's that's a kind of a madness, isn't it? To be speaking that language with that kind of tone and the assumed feeling or lack of it behind those words. But Spurgeon says, if you get hold of the soul and say to it, I will not let thee perish. If you say to your friends, as Whitfield would say to his congregation, if you perish, it shall not be for want of praying for, it shall not be for want of weeping over. If you are damned, it shall not be because my heart was cold towards you. You will win them. They will be led to believe from your earnestness. Who knows how many your earnest spirit may bring to Jesus? Praying and teaching, if effectual, must be earnest. And hence, when the Spirit comes to save the sons of men, he always gives us earnest praying men and earnest teachers. So he's talking about the work of praying. He's talking about the work of preaching and teaching. But he says that's not all. We must come to persuasion with men. Again, here's this immediacy, this personality. That persuasion must be very persevering. Certain men we must dog day after day with our entreaties. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if if Spurgeon were preaching that to many of the Christians I know, they would say, well, that's not very polite, is it? We're not going to win anybody with that kind of insistence. No, we, we've spoken and we've said to somebody we'd like them to come to church or we'd like them to learn about Jesus or we'd like them to take a tract, but they're not that interested and so it wouldn't be right for us to do anything but but back away and maybe another opportunity will come. Spurgeon says, some souls will not come with one invitation. They must therefore be plied with many. You have to keep pressing home. He uses the example of a minister who went to see a dying laborer and the man growls, tell him to be gone. I want none of the like of him to disturb me. And he goes again and he goes again and he's halfway up the stairs and he hears the man cursing and swearing. 20 times he goes. The 21st time the man said, well, as you're so set on it, you may come in. And he did go in, and that soul was one for God. Now, humanly speaking, where would that man have been except for the persevering zeal of the minister? And when the Lord means to save men by you, he will give you perseverance in seeking them. If you do door-to-door work and you knock on a door and someone pushes you back or you speak to someone once and they say, well, maybe, and you think, well, will I bother again? Or, or they come once and they don't say, no, go again. Remember where they live. Remember their name. Go and knock on the door. Drop in another note. Leave a different tract. Tell them when you can. We want you to know this Jesus, not just we want you to come to church, we want you to come to Christ. And then earnest zeal is a natural result of the Holy Spirit's working upon the souls of men. So remember that when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, he is going to stir up work by us. It, he sanctifies the natural instinct which leads them to wish others to be like themselves. We've got this desire to, to draw people after us, and that's true of a Christian or should be, and the Holy Spirit works in us. He also stirs up in us the impulse of gratitude. Has Christ saved me? 
Then the man exclaims, I will live for him. The Spirit gives impetus to that suggestion, and we resolve that since Jesus has loved us so, we will give to him all that we are and all that we have. Then the Holy Spirit sanctifies other natural emotions. You notice here Spurgeon saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't work against nature in, in that sense, but, but rather he, he engages and renews the nature that in, in, in which he is working. And so you get this esprit de corps, this spirit of the community, this uh, togetherness in which you desire the prosperity of that community to which you belong. So you feel one with Christ's church and you ardently desire her success. Uh, you want others to come in and you want to see the church grow and you want to see the church prosper and you want to see the church know more of its Christ. And then the Spirit in some men sheds abroad the love of Christ at such a rate that the soul is all on fire to exalt the Lord Jesus. Like men inspired, like ancient apostles, he says, certain choice spirits have lived the life of Christ on earth with an awful vehemence of enthusiasm. Wherever such men are raised up, God is about to save souls. Whenever you listen to a man carried away by an all-consuming desire for the glory of God, you don't say we want to pour a bucket of cold water over you. No, you conclude that he is the instrument of God to thousands. His lips shall feed many. He shall be the spiritual progenitor of tribes of believers. And we tell those men too often, sit down, calm down, shut up, back off, don't get too carried away. Why are you so over the top? Spurgeon says, that's the man who's likely to accomplish things for the glory of God and the good of many souls. Further, the whole history of the church confirms what I have stated. Read the history, he says, from the apostolic time onward, and this is the rule. Christ's ministry and life were notably earnest. He was clad with zeal as with a cloak. His apostles also were men so vehement that in their earliest deliverances they were thought to be drunk with wine. Every era of the church's prosperity has been marked by the same holy violence as Christ mentioned when he said that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. He talks about Chrysostom. And he talks about Augustine. He talks about the Reformation. He talks about uh, Luther as the type of them all, vehement to the extreme of vehemence. He says, dear brothers, if we are to see in these days a genuine revival of religion worthy of the name, we must return to that old enthusiasm which once made the church fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Oh, that we may live to see it, and the Lord's name shall be glorified. And so the conclusion of the matter, and now he combines the two things of which we've spoken. So we've got this structure, and as it, like, as it were, you've got these, these two elements, work in us and by us in our own salvation, work in us and by us in the salvation of others. And they're now walling together and bringing all the force of those two threads into this great thrust. Dear brothers, he says, let us rely upon the Holy Ghost and the Holy Ghost only. Let us not go to warfare at our own charges. Let us believe that without the Lord, nothing good can be done. But let us rest assured that Jesus is never absent where he gives the spirit of prayer as he is given to this church and that he never deserts those to whom he vouchsafes holy zeal for his kingdom, such as he has bestowed on many here present. 
Oh, what a wonderful thing to be able to say that at the congregation to which you preach, especially if you've got as many hundreds or thousands as Spurgeon did. So let us be encouraged by his presence, knowing that the Holy Ghost is with us. Lift the cry amid the midnight of our age, the the Gideon cry, the sword of the Lord and of his son Jesus, and we shall see what God will do, for he will surely put to flight the armies of the aliens and get to himself renown. And with that confidence in the Holy Spirit, Spurgeon says, combine the most earnest effort on the part of everyone to do all he can. So look for that work in us, yes, and carry out that work by us. And he sees in the church and neighborhood, in in his mind's eye, the counterpart of the mountainside when the multitude were fainting for lack of bread. They must be fed. Christ willed it. Uh, The disciples, they, they seem to have nothing worth worth talking about to feed them with. But, says Christ, go and do these things, and you'll do them in his strength. So what you have of ability, however slender, bring it out. Christ will not begin to multiply till you have brought forth all you have. So don't hold anything back, however small it may be. Use it, and may God be glorified. Miracles are not to be expected till nature is brought to a non-plus, till till you've got nowhere else to go. So whatever you've got of talent, whatever you have of grace, consecrate it all to Jesus, and as he begins to multiply, stand ready as your master's servants to wait upon the crowd. It's a beautiful image of a church in a particular place going out with their little all and resting on Christ and his miraculous power. One bright spirit thinks he would exchange his crown with the meanest of the disciples if he might share that service of gospel teaching. The angels might envy you, those blessed harpers upon the sea of glass. You can do what they cannot. You can tell of Jesus. You can fetch in the prodigals. You can find the lost jewels for the master's crown. And that's what brings him to that crunchy conclusion. I charge you, my brethren, by the living God, unless your religion be hypocrisy, help me this month. Help my brethren, the elders and deacons. Help us, every one of you by the blood that bought you, if ye be indeed redeemed, by the Holy Ghost that is in you, except ye be reprobates, by everything that God in loving kindness has done for you, I charge you, come to the help of the Master in this the hopeful hour. So may the Lord do unto you as you shall deal with us this day. If you shall indeed consecrate yourselves to him and serve him, may he enrich you with the increase of God, and may the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds. But if you refuse your service, the Lord shall judge you. He that knows his master's will and does it not shall be beaten with many stripes. And now, does it sound so harsh or does it sound full of zeal? Do you understand now why he's pleading with them to work and and pleading a blessing upon them that they would be blessed in the same spirit in which they go to bless others? Do you understand why he's saying, if the Holy Ghost is in you, if he's at work in you, how can he not be at work by you? How could you hold back when he has done such things in you and for you, for the sake of Jesus Christ? You hear then the force, you hear the the, the earnestness, you hear the zeal of the preacher and what might have seemed hard and 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 and, and cutting actually becomes, yes, hot, burning hot, but but bright and warm and clear. 
And may God help us then to to think in terms of the work that is in us by the Holy Spirit and consequently the work that is done by us and to glorify him in that which we set out to accomplish. I hope this has been a help to you in your spirit. I hope it's at least something of of Spurgeon's excellence as a preacher as shone through a little, uh, not just in the the substance, but then in the the very tone and the uh, the the structure and the, the the earnestness, the passionate zeal with which he preaches. And I hope you'll join us again next week when God willing we'll be looking at Sermon nine hundred and twenty one on Nathaniel and the fig tree, and we'll be. Uh, reading together sermons 920 to 926. So do join us then. If you're able to, the, go and find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. You can find us also at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. They're producers and distributors for this uh, for this material. Uh, and you can sign up with them too for a, a newsletter that will point you to the text of the weekly sermon and help you to uh, find other resources like these in spirit that we trust will be a blessing to your souls. So thank you again for listening. Do leave us a, a review or or tell someone else that there's something worth listening here, uh, and we trust that, that God will smile upon us as he continues to work in us and we continue to work for him. God bless you. Until next time. <laughs>